I think part of our disease is that everything is urgent and important and deciphering what to do first and what the focus should be is is an art in itself. You know, I, I would just think, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to prioritize my list. But by stepping out and stepping back and pausing, you kind of think, okay, first things first, what do I need to do? And you can get focused and get it done, be united. Welcome to episode 306 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Janice, Yasmin, Carmen, and Desea. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Janice, Yasmin, Carmen, and Desea for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me is Karen, and welcome back to The Recovery Show, Karen. Thank you, Spencer. Congrats on over 300 inspiring episodes. Oh, well, thank you. As is our practice, we want to open with a reading that I asked you to choose, and and why don't you tell us about it? Since we were talking about traditions, I decided to choose Tradition 1, and that reading is found on April 17th of Courage to Change. Many of us have had anxious moments at work and around our families when it came to making decisions affecting others as a group. We'd worry, will everyone be happy with this decision? Surely there was one perfect way to do things, and it was our responsibility to find it. Al-Anon has helped me develop a simple policy about group decisions, as suggested by Al-Anon's first tradition. Our common welfare should come first. This tradition applies to the conduct of our Al-Anon groups, but I find it useful in other situations, too. If the group's plans seem designed to benefit the greatest number of people, I can usually support them. I don't mean that I ignore my own needs and feelings. I express them, but others have needs, too, and I must respect them. Such choices may not bring immediate happiness to me or others, but ultimately, we will all benefit. As the first tradition says, Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. Today's reminder. Do I try to force my will on others in group situations, or am I learning to respect their rights as well as my own? I can feel secure in my opinions if I keep the group's best interest at heart. Unity presents not only the necessary climate for the growth of Al-Anon as a whole, but also the atmosphere in which each member within the group may acquire peace of mind. The 12 Steps and Traditions. Thank you. You were on the show a little while ago, episode 262, I guess that's almost a year ago. And that one was titled Third Time is the Charm, if anybody wants to go back and refresh their memory. As I recall from that episode, you talked about coming to Al-Anon three times before it finally sort of clicked for you. But uh, apparently it it has clicked because now you're back and you have a, a sort of a new installment in your story. Also to talk about how you're using a couple of the traditions, you suggested traditions one and two in your life. So you read tradition one in the reading. How about tradition two? For our group purpose, there is but one authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. We'll come back to those in a sec. Let's let's catch up on where you are. Uh, you told me there's been some big changes recently. Yeah, there have been. One week ago, I moved into a new home away from my alcoholic qualifier of 14 years. So that was a very long time coming, but it was only through the grace of the program that I was able to take baby steps to getting to this big, humongous, huge step, which is moving out of the home, of the chaotic, alcoholic home. What brought you to that decision? And what were those baby steps? I think I think that's something that people who are in a, a situation might, you know, benefit from hearing about. Sure. You know, I've said that I've had a few false starts to um, leaving, but 
I had to get myself together first. And I really, really worked the program. It took me probably seven and a half years before I really, really became happy and content within the insane environment. I just kept going to meetings and surrounding myself with really healthy, positive people. And I culled my group of friends so that I was only with like-minded spiritual people. Mm. And it was just, that was it. I just focused on me and I, I really got myself together. That was the baby steps, you know, just Mm -hmm. taking care of myself and and turning the focus inward instead of outward and just doing the next right thing. You know, I would get paralyzed seeing like, you know, where would I go? How would I pay for it? What's going to happen? What about my children? This, that, and the other thing. But I just needed to do good orderly direction, you know, our acronym for God and the next right thing. I came to the decision that I had to leave after years of praying for a loving God to show me his or her will for me. I realized by default that God's will for me was not to be treated the way I was treated um, by my qualifier for so long. You know, through Al-Anon, I was able to find peace in the insanity and then with serenity and, you know, a lot of pain, I was able to just get out and leave and just recognize that I wanted a better quality of life for myself and putting down my shield. You know, I, I think it's exhausting. I heard you and Eric talk about boxing with an octopus and, <laughs> you know, it, even being in the house, you're in the ring, like you don't want to be, but it's just, it's a lot to, to endure day after day. Yeah. So what I hear is this was a, a process that really you, you thought through, you prayed over, it wasn't, and I think that's obvious from what you said, it was not just a, oh, I got to get out of here, I'm leaving now kind of thing, right? It was a couple times. I mean, there there were a couple instances where it was very dramatic. I'm leaving, and I would, you know, pack and, and go somewhere with the children and come back, you know, but it was just, I can't do this. And a lot of verbal, I'm not doing this, this is too much for me, and then... um I, I wasn't really meaning what I said. I thought I meant what I said because mm-hmm. I was just so passionate, but I didn't follow through. It was non-assertive with my words. That's a huge thing, whether you decide to leave or to stay, you know, yeah. um, no matter what decision we make. So let's come back to how you express, how you live the traditions. And I think you said you have a reading about tradition too also. I do. I have the blue book, How Al-Anon Works. One of my favorite Al-Anon meetings reads from the How Al-Anon Works weekly. And um, you can find on page 108, which is tradition two. Hmm. And it says that our enduring strength may lie in the fact that we are fellowship of equals. No one member, regardless of education, political clout, or professional expertise, is any more valuable to the fellowship than any other member. We are all experts because of our experience, and we are all beginners because our lives are in a constant state of growth and change. Newcomers are as likely as longtime members to utter words that inspire and inform. So we have no reason to look to any one person or small group of people as authorities. In fact, we recognize only one authority over our groups and our fellowship as a whole, a loving God of our understanding. We have seen that as individuals, we cannot possibly contend with the effects of alcoholism without spiritual help. We turn to the same source of guidance in order to learn how best to work together toward our common goal of recovery. Just as many of us find a power greater than ourselves in the collective wisdom of our Al-Anon group, we seek spiritual guidance for our groups in the same collective wisdom. We call this a group conscience, the voice of the majority of members. We believe it represents the greatest good for the greatest number. Okay, so those two those two go together, I think, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the first one talks about unity, supporting progress, and common welfare. And the second one is sort of like, well, how do you get that? Right. How do you get that unity? How do you support that common welfare, right? 
And that's why I chose one and two, you know, and, and for me, the decision to leave came out of the traditions for my family, for my children. There was an incident and it was kind of the last, last straw. And I just thought, this is not good for them. This is not good for these little boys to see their father, whom they love and adore, so drunk out of his mind that he can't speak and walk. And they came to me and they said that they felt scared. And that was it. And so that was just the, the drop in the bucket that made it overflow. And I knew that God would take care of us. And, and I just remember praying and I thought, you know, all of my fears, God does, you know, God takes, takes care of finding a home, a shelter, and God takes care of finances and God takes care of the well-being of the boys and God will take care of me. And, and I just put my trust. It was the most courageous thing I've ever done in my life, but I just knew that a loving God would provide and you know, she has. In this case, you were looking at the common welfare of your family and in particular of your children. Yes. So that's one of the ways in which you understand that phrase in, in your life. Are there other, there are other places in your life where you see a common welfare? Mm -hmm. I work with seven team members on my team and we constantly have decisions to make and, you know, as anyone who works knows that everyone has an opinion and sometimes <laughs> the people who are loudest and most vociferous about their opinions are not the ones that necessarily are, the, are right, but the quiet ones don't always get heard. And just to come to a consensus for the majority is challenging. But when you put principles over personalities, like we're taught in this program, then it becomes more clear. And I think it's really, it's about that. It's about taking our ego out of it and stopping easing God out and just going forward. I don't actually have the the book with me right here, but I believe that in the reading for Tradition 2 in the book Paths to Recovery, there is a discussion of hearing the minority opinion in the Mm. group conscience process. I heard that again in what you were just saying, that even when you come to a majority decision, it's important to hear all the voices. Yes. The tradition doesn't say that like explicitly in the words, um, but I believe the discussion of the tradition does. You can't hear the voice of a loving higher power if you only listen to the loudest voices, right? That's right. Once, once we agree that, that we have a common welfare, then the tradition says our common welfare should come first. And so, in what ways have you placed common welfare first? And, of course, the obvious answer has to do with the decision to leave, right? Right. In Al-Anon meetings all the time, you know, we have group consciences to decide what is best for the group. You know, if um, one person can have a time limit on their service position. You know, the, our poor literature person, you know, there was no time limit and she, you know, she kept asking for someone to relieve her mm-hmm. and nobody would relieve her. And then, you know, we had a conscious and yes, you know, we have to have, we have to have limits so that people don't get overburdened and other people thought that we didn't and it would just work out organically. You listen to everyone and it's, it's a vote. So it's, it's really well, organized in our program. Mm-hmm. Tradition one also talks about unity. It says personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. How do you see unity in, in the family, in the meeting at work, supporting your, your own personal progress or the personal progress of others in the group? Unity is a hard one because it's, it's united. It's standing as one and we are so different as individuals, but when we focus on the steps and the traditions and, you know, later the concepts, we can really recognize the, the purpose and the focus and the goal of our group and to come, you know, to United Decision, not everyone's going to be happy, but you have to do it. I was at a, another meeting that 
wanted to have babysitting uh, as an option for the meeting. And there were, there were a lot of people who had young children that would have benefited from it. Mm -hmm. And there was a smaller population that would not have. And because it was expensive and it didn't necessarily help all of them, some people were very loud in in their dissent, but the, the group ended up providing a babysitting service and it just, it united the group and it ended up being the best thing to happen because it was good for the majority versus the minority. And, and we do that all the time when we plan where to have meetings, you know, we live in an urban area and a lot of times there aren't parking lots. And so mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. will say, when we start a new meeting, do we need to have a parking lot? And it's just such a thoughtful process. Mostly, you know, obviously um, we have people in, who need to keep coming back that, uh, you know, will will really, in an unkind way, state their opinion. But for the most part, you know, Al-Anon is is such a loving environment where people can have their opinions and, you know, they they let them go if if it's different afterwards. And that's why I keep coming back after almost a decade. I, I just, it teaches me how to organize my thoughts and my meetings and myself and my actions in a healthier way than I had ever imagined, definitely healthier than I grew up, what was modeled to me, <laughs> you know, and even in a lot of toxic work environments, I didn't see healthy board meetings and healthy, um, no kidding. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Healthy yeah. meetings. People just shout or use inappropriate language and it's, it's not that serious, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about my work group, which, I know I talk about a lot because it is a large portion of my waking life. Every time we plan work for the next period, we take some time at the beginning of the meeting to say, you know, what are our goals as a team? What goals have we set for ourselves as a team? And and there's a process that's on a longer cadence, currently quarterly for, for setting team goals. You know, what are we, what are we going to focus on for the next three months, for the next quarter, for the next year? Sometimes just that process of reminding ourselves about that unity of goals, right? Mm-hmm. That this is what we agreed we're focusing on now. In that context, what do we need to do for the next week or so? And we actually meet every week. Most of the teams in my organization meet every two weeks to do this. At least the the engineering teams, uh, I think sales teams and so on, work on a on a on a very different cadence. You know, theirs is more annual. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it, with certain times of year, so we we are in the academic arena, which means that we basically have twice a year when when. Sales is really busy. There's the end of the year for people who are on a sort of a calendar year uh, budget cycle. Uh, we're on a calendar year budget cycle, so they certainly have stuff to do there. But a lot of academic institutions, particularly in the U.S., are on a sort of July to June budget cycle. And so they get busy a couple times a year. And so they they have very different planning depending what time of year it is, whereas the engineering teams, we're pretty much – the work that we do is not very tied to the calendar year. Occasionally there's an initiative that is like, we're going to have this brand new feature and we're going to release it. I hate this. I have hated this for, you know, 20 years. We got this thing. We're going to release it on January 1st. I'm like, Oh God, there goes Christmas vacation again. Uh. (laughs) And, and sometimes that's meaningful. Like we had one initiative that had to line up with some customer cycles um, it was about publishing some magazines online and and they wanted to line it up with their subscription cycle, which was January. And so that made sense. But sometimes it's just like, we want to announce it at the beginning of the year. We're like, well, why? You know? <laughs> um, why can't we do it in like, you know, March when we're not, you don't have everybody taking vacations and stuff at the end of the, anyway. Uh, but coming back to the point I was trying to make is that recentering our common purpose, recentering our unity before we then go into the details of what work are we going to do for the next week or two. 
I think, helps us to keep that unity. It helps us to stay focused on on actually where we're going. And I've seen this. I've been working for the same company for almost 25 years. And wow. and the yeah, which is pretty amazing these days, isn't it? Yeah. When we as a, a a company were able to focus our efforts on one or two initiatives, we were able to make a lot more progress than when it was like, well, there's these five things we we absolutely have to do this year. Right. You know, when it was one thing, like we really got stuff done. And yeah, the other four things that other people thought were equally important didn't get done because as a whole, and here we come to tradition too, right? As a whole, mm-hmm. we had decided this is the one thing we want to focus on this year that will enable us to do the other things more efficiently when we get this this thing done. I can just see the traditions kind of working there, even though like, I don't know who in the company's in a 12 step program. No, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Because I think part of our disease is that everything is urgent and important and deciphering what to do first and what Mm. the focus should be is, is an art in itself. You know, I, I would just think, Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to prioritize my list, but by stepping out and stepping back and pausing, you kind of think, okay, first things first, what do I need to do? Yeah. And you can get focused and get it done, be united. And in the tradition too, we talk about the authority of a loving God. You expressed that very clearly when you were talking about your decision to, to move out. Mm-hmm. that You don't know how, but you know that you will get that support. Yeah, you know, I I feel like we were given so many tools in our program, but we also have to let go of our, you know, rusted tools that <laughs> didn't work that we used for so long. I always talk about my file cabinet and my bulldozer, and I actually have a charm bracelet with a bulldozer on it, and I say that I um, had to give it to God because I would just, you know, drive my bulldozer and through the walls and this was my way and I wanted to stay married and I was going to make it happen and this was the way it was going to be. When I finally surrendered to the true acceptance of reality, I was able to give give it to God. And then my file cabinets were all my justification and all my evidence and all my flow charts of why I was right and why, why I knew better than anybody and how I'm going to explain to you and show you with, you know, colorful pie graphs, how I am so perfect and telling you what to do. And then I just, I got rid of those too. And those were so humbling, but it allowed God to come in and I realize now that I was blocking the light. Mm. No, okay. I'm just. I need to process for a second. Okay. I have to quiet the noise in my head in order to understand. In order to hear that that authority, right? Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. My thoughts, my minds interfere with higher powers, messages, and will, and signs. Okay. In your family, I don't know how old your kids are, but do you, have you used this group conscience idea in the family? So they're seven and nine and we, we do a little, we have family meetings and, you know, we take a roll call in attendance and we bring agenda items, which usually involve, you know, getting the latest technology video game console <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we vote on what, you know, if we want to do it or not. And, and we do, I do introduce to them kind of like, their autonomy and their being individuals and having ideas and rights, but um, not always their way. With me, it's just me and my wife. So I guess any conversation about what we want to do could be a group conscience. 
<laughs> How intimate. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go back to work on this. And one of the other things we do at work is, again, every, for uh, for my team every week, for other teams, maybe every couple of weeks, we take an hour to just look back over the last week or so and say, the typical three questions we ask are, what went well? What could use improvement? And what do we want to change? That's so healthy. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's it really so is. program, even though it's like, you know, it's like inventory totally and, and, and six and seven step kind of thing. But one of the tools, like physical tools that we use are sticky notes, okay. you know, post-it notes. Or now we have a computer thing, but it's the equivalent. Everybody writes whatever they want to write on on the, the questions that we're answering that day on a note. We all do it to, at the same time. We're not like hearing each other's opinions or each other's ideas while we're writing. And then we stick them up on the wall or they get they show up on the computer screen because we, we did it in the computer or whatever. And for me, what I see there is it helps to equalize the voices. Oh, I love that. You know, it helps to get all the yeah. voices out. It minimizes the chance that that one person dominates. Yes, and then you you would have a visual for who a lot of people having the same ideas. Yeah, or which right, viewer? Right. Yeah. So we put them up on the wall, and then generally the next step is: do we group some? Right. Okay. Did several people write basically the same thing? Well, that makes that that particular thing probably a little more important if several people said it. Given that I'm one of the loud voices in the group, um, I actually appreciate the fact that I'm not. I, the process basically forbids me from from overwhelming with my voice during during that time. It can still happen when we're talking, and sometimes we break out the talking stick. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> a visual. Yeah, it it you know it could be a whiteboard eraser. I mean, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. It's just when you're holding that, you're the one talking and everybody else is, is supposed to be quiet, which works pretty well most of the time. So that's kind of what I think about when I think about the, the group conscience and, and hearing the voice of a higher power in that context. Like that's one of the tools that we use to let everybody speak up in whatever way they need to. Um, and it also provides a small measure of anonymity if somebody's really concerned about they might be saying something that is so counter to what everybody else thinks. You know, I mean, it's hand, there's handwriting and so on, but it's like you don't have to open your mouth and say the thing. You put it up on the wall and then somebody reads it. That's great. And then you can say, that was mine. Or not, mm-hmm. you know? Right. The anonymity part of it is yeah. very programmed. Yeah. yeah. I think there's some times when that would be helpful in group conscience meeting in some of my LNI meetings, but not going there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have other other groups that um, you're part of where you you do or don't sort of follow these traditions, whether consciously or unconsciously? So I have a big extended family of origin. Oh boy. And yeah. And so when there are decisions to be made, it's kind of like the loudest um, voice gets heard. Mm-hmm. You know, I can think of one instance where the, the, the six main children and then they have a bunch of offspring and so on. And so they, they wanted to hire a photographer to photograph at a family party but one of the grandchildren of, of the six wasn't going to be there. So she did not want to have a photographer to immortalize her grandchild not being there. There was no photographer. And long story short, someone passed away within the year. And <laughs> right. We never had that picture. You right. know, and it, um, so, yeah, so I can see how it doesn't work when you don't have the, the program organization. and. The last sentence in Tradition 2 has always been a little bit baffling. Mm -hmm. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. I mean, I understand it, but this idea that what trusted servant, 
Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think that is, that is baffling because it's like you're the leader, but you don't govern. So are you a channel through which, you know, higher power is, is coming? I'm not really sure. For a trusted servant, I think it's just that we assume good intent and positive intent that they're following the traditions of the meeting and, uh, the goals for, for the members. Um, Mm -hmm. and since it's not just one, it's not a dictatorship, it's, it's a committee for clearness essentially. Yeah. I mean, I can think about this in a number of ways. It's, um, I think for me, the basic concept is, has to do with some, sort of delegation of authority or responsibility. Um, We have a group representative in our meetings, at least some meetings do. That group representative attends like the area or district meetings, um, presumably in some way expresses the will of the group to the district and brings information back from the the larger Al-Anon community to to the group, and so that person has these well defined roles, and we trust that person to carry out those roles. Right. But in the district meeting, you know that person is the one who is voting on questions that come up at that level. Right. Um, so in that sense, they're a leader. Um, they they get to do that thing that the rest of us don't get to do. I remember one group rep coming and, and telling us the agenda items that they were going to vote on and, you know, telling the home group that w- they would have an open time after a meeting to talk about what we wanted, where we wanted the location of the bookstore to be, Uh you know, within a 40 mile radius. And I thought that was so thoughtful and respectful. And I don't recall too many meetings hearing the group rep say what was going to be on the docket. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, The thing that, that occurs that I think of even in that is, you know, I would get, the sense of the people in the meeting, what they think, but then I would go to the the district meeting and I would hear other arguments mm-hmm. you know? and that might change my mind. I might say, Oh wow. We didn't think of that, right. that factor. I can't go back to the, to the meeting and, and, and re regroup redirect. Um, I'm going to have to make a decision now. To me, that's where the trust comes in. The trust that that my group rep is making decisions based on the best information that they have and their understanding, if they've solicited it, of, of what the meeting, what's the sense of the, the group conscience of the meeting, too. Um, it's very tricky. Others are easier. Uh, one of the meetings that, that I go to, there's a person every month who basically... Um, selects the the speaker who opens the meeting, right? okay, um, and and chairs the meeting. So they they read the opening the opening script and and so on. Uh, and we trust that person to pick people who are going to give a good lead at the beginning of the meeting, right? Mm-hmm. In that sense, they're leading because they're choosing. They're the voice of the meeting for that month. When you know if somebody new comes in and and say I'm I'm the the chair for that month, they see me as, you know, the head of the meeting in that sense. Right. Right. Um, But I'm only there for a limited time and I have limited roles. Like I don't get to decide everything. I get to decide who's going to speak tonight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, and it's in that meeting, it's a 10 minute lead. So um, I don't have a huge effect. on (laughs) Um, So again, it's, it's, I'm given an authority to do something. So that happens in the family. I just take an example from my personal life. I'm generally the one between me and my wife who plans what we're going to have for meals during the week. 
And sometimes we have a discussion about, you know, what would you like? And, and sometimes we don't have time for that. And, and I just pick things. Okay. Um, and I have, you know, a pretty good idea what my wife likes and doesn't like. You know, <laughs> she doesn't like Indian food, and I do, but I, so I don't pick Indian food. If I'm going to have Indian food, I'll go out for it, right? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a trusted servant. She trusts me to, to pick food that, that we will both like and, and to make it available. Um, and then the second part of that is she actually does the prep work for it because she's generally home in the afternoon while I'm still at work. And so then I can come home and make dinner. You know, the onions are chopped and whatever. And we can have dinner on the table usually within a half hour or less. And so we both benefit from that. And we each trust the other to do the right thing. Neither of us is governing. But uh, yeah, anyway, so I don't know. That's, that's, that's an example I've got. Yeah, makes sense. But if you take this concept of trusted servant, if you just sort of hold that in your head, even if you, you know, you're not sure you are one or whatever, how might that change the way in which you relate to people in the various groups that you're a member of? Just, it would help me put the principles ahead of everything Mm -hmm. and realize that, you know, there's a bigger purpose on this planet and in this universe. And, you know, my job is just to be kind and to serve as, as a light, you know, and to help people. I'm, it's not my job to tell people what to do or to boss them around, but just to facilitate instruction or to help in some way and not rule, like, you know, with an iron mm-hmm. fist and, yeah. and just, you know, and just the loving God, you know, the, all the words in our literature and our steps and traditions were so thoughtfully chosen. And it doesn't just say God, it says a yeah. loving God as he may express himself. You know, so it's it's a kindness, it's a compassion, and the love that um, that that you help encourage others. I feel. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's so true. Any sort of final thoughts you have on on this topic of using the traditions one and two in particular? Well, I feel like for me, it takes the burden off of decision making and the weight of this is so heavy and so important and there's one right way to do it. And if I don't do it properly, the world's going to be over. And it just reminds me that if I do things for the greatest number from a loving place, it's going to work out and I can trust and turn it over and know that you know, if it doesn't work out, then I'll deal with it then. But for right now, I can just work this and turn it over. Thanks. So we'll take a little break and then um, we'll talk about our lives in recovery. Uh, how that's different about the discussion we've just been having. We'll see <laughs> how recovery <laughs> works in our daily lives and, and in our meetings. And you picked some music. Yes. The first song is Dizzy with Swim, and I want everyone to listen to the song. It's so beautiful. Uh, came to me from a program friend during the beginning of this enormous journey for me. Dizzy talks about floating, and I envision that as surrendering. And some of the lyrics are, We'll be all right in the morning. When the world is on fire, we'll be treading in the yard till I'm ready to float, and you carry me home. And I just, I feel like God is carrying me. If I just surrender, I will float instead of fighting and going against the tide. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives in this week or recently. And I was thinking about that part of where I'm using the program in my life right now is with our dog. Mm -hmm. Um, He's still relatively new to us. He came as a rescue from um, a racing kennel. He's a greyhound. And he's got still some somewhat severe separation anxiety, which means that whenever we leave, whether it's to go upstairs to go to the bathroom or to go to work for the day, 
he often exhibits anxiety by whining, by barking, by howling. Um, last night, I, I went upstairs briefly. As I was coming back down the stairs, I could hear him yowling. You know, oh, like, oh, I'm so lonely. <laughs> you know, and my wife was there with him, right? You know, um, and and there's been a number of other things that we've been having issues with in terms of you know sort of the obedience training and and we've come to believe that for the most part almost all of the issues we're having have to do with this this anxiety this you know anxiety that somebody's going to leave and and never come back wow i think this actually connects back to this idea of common purpose and and welfare right common welfare that's the one i'm looking for common welfare that when we understand that oh this is the underlying issue then we can change the way in which we respond based on that understanding. And um, one of the things she said, for example, is, so when he's barking because somebody left, that, you know, sort of yelling at him to hush is, is almost, or maybe not even almost, is actually counterproductive, right? Stop drinking. Oh, no, God, I haven't even connected it to that. Oh, my God. So there's this whole thing about, like, you know, dog training. It's like, well, don't reward the behavior you don't want, right? Right. And so we tried that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's mostly not effective. It's like, hush, bark louder, you know? And so <laughs> she's like, I think what we need to do and, and what we've started to do is to hug him. You know, just get down with him and give him a big hug. And then he's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm actually okay. I don't need to, I don't need to bark or howl or whatever because I'm okay. And so, you know, we're hopeful that (laughs) he will, he will come to be more secure in, in us, um, in his situation. Definitely. And there's a couple other things that he has this, this weird thing about the yard. Like sometimes he just does not want to go in the yard and he has to go in the yard, you know? Right. <laughs> um, and, and we don't think that's about separation. That's, that's something else. Uh, and so there we have to use a different approach, you know, sort of the reward approach, like maybe take him out there on a leash, which he'll follow, not happily, but he'll follow. And then, you know, when he does his business, you know, praise him and give him a, a really mm-hmm. special treat. And so we're hoping... Mm-hmm. I don't know. That doesn't relate to the program, but it, it's a thing. It's, it's oh, it about- totally does. <laughs> okay. It totally does. It's like, I'm seeing the dog as the alcoholic. Don't tell them what to do. <laughs> Let it- them come to it on their own. <laughs> yeah, it's true. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that insight. I just started reading a book, which had been recommended, and I can't even remember now where it was recommended because it was maybe six months ago or at least several months ago, I put it on like the reserve list from the library. Okay. And it finally came around to, to my turn to read the book. The book, it's not exactly program, but I see a lot of what I've been learning from program here. It's called the second mountain. And his premise is that in our, in many of our lives, we spend a good part of our life climbing the mountain of success. Mm-hmm you know, personal self-actualization, money, etc. But he says that for a lot of us, we don't get to the peak of that mountain that we thought we were going to get to at least. And maybe we come down into a valley. Um, he says, but there's a second mountain, and, and the second mountain is about how we serve others wow. rather than how we serve ourselves. And I've just started the book. I'm kind of in the first chapter. So I was thinking about how that connects to really what what I've learned over the last um, decade and a half of being in program and, and how not so much like necessarily what I learned in program, although a lot of it is about how we help each other by just being there, right? But because of the recovery that I've practiced I find myself in a place in my life where I am 
being of service and getting joy from it. Yes. Um, you know, I spend a couple hours a week with a bunch of seventh graders at church. Sometimes like today, I'm like, oh man, I have to go in there and like, you know, deal with <laughs> these, with these kids. Mm-hmm. I never feel like that when I come out. Wow. Giving to them, providing them a space in which they can express what's inside themselves some to some extent, where they can be themselves, gives me joy. Um, it's it's all like the only way I can express it. You're paying it forward, and you know you're being there for them is during, especially during that time in their lives. You know, adolescence is so challenging, but you're, you're going to help them be resilient. And um, it only takes one mentor in their life to change it. And that could be you. You know, that's what I said when I started down this, this path of working with our teens. Oh, more than 10 years ago, that if I can help one person, to find a path in life that is meaningful to them, I will have succeeded. And and I hope it's been more than one person, you know? So many, so many through this show and then, you know. Yeah, well, there's that too. Church. I wasn't going to go there, but yes. <laughs> but No, it's true. I, you know, I work with children and, you know, the studies show that children don't care how much that you know, as long as they know how much you care. And you could be, uh, a janitor, but just one person to believe and to be there for one child is all that they need. It doesn't have to be their parent. Um, and it's just so important that they have one person to mentor them and to, to mm-hmm. be there for them and actually care how they're doing. Yeah. This morning, um, our youth choir was singing in the service. Five of the members of the youth choir are also in the seventh grade. And we normally get about 10 kids showing up. So, I was thinking, well, so we could just do something well until the choir shows up and then we'll go into our, you know, regularly scheduled activity. Mm-hmm. Or we could actually show up and support the choir. Oh wow. Wow. And that's what we decided to do. You know, because they're in the service for like the first fifteen minutes and then the the kids go out and, and the adults stay. And you get to the, the, you know, the boring part, right? As the kids would see it. And I think it was the right decision. Um, I really do. I mean, it not only was support for the the five kids from my, my group that are in the choir, but also, um, you know, showing to everybody that we support, you know, we support our, our, our friends, our colleagues, whatever they are, right? Anyway. Yeah, that means so much. I guess that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. I've been I can't even think about recent meetings. What happened? So, um, I mean, yesterday we talked about step two, which is totally relevant all over here about you know coming to believe that a higher power can help us. Um, I don't think I had any real significant wisdom, but I was glad to get to a meeting. Mm. So, how about you? You know, yesterday I went to a couple meetings because I needed to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the ones that stuck with me was the idea of a spiral staircase. How, you know, in life we're still climbing and it goes around and around. But the more we come to Al-Anon and keep coming back, the more we're better able to deal with the climbing and the stairs and the easier it gets because we are just um, prepared that life's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perfect, but we know what to do and and how to navigate life with more ease, balance, and grace. Sounds like a great topic. (laughs) It's a great meeting. Yeah. And uh, I think you've talked a lot about how you're using the program in your life this week. (laughs) You know, I've learned to ask for help. I've had so many people come help me make lists of what I need to do and, you know, take me to target, take my phone calls, you know, be there for me when I needed it. And I never would have reached out for help 10 years ago, but, um, this program's miracle and I'm so grateful. And exactly what you said, I'm going to pay it forward. 
you know, if I go to a meeting and someone feels unsafe and they need a place to stay, I, you know, I can provide shelter for that night or whatever. Um, picking up someone that doesn't have a ride to a meeting, I can do it, you know. Um, at this point in life, being a newly single mom, it's going to be harder to um, you know, commit to a service position at the same time, same place. But there's things I can do in my everyday life to help. I, I was just going to say, having two kids and being the only parent in the house and still doing service like that, um, that's significant. Well, I'm also trying to work with the alcoholic to share custody, which is fun. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, we put the kids first. So it's not as hard as I had catastrophized in my head. Good, good. Is that fun in air quotes? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I thought yes, I, definitely. I thought I, I thought I heard them, yes. <laughs> you did. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for taking a little time out of your week to be here with us. We welcome we welcome everybody's thoughts. Um, you know, you can do what Karen's doing and be a, be a guest host on the, uh, on the podcast. You can join our conversation in many ways. You can leave a voicemail, send us an email with your feedback, your questions, your thoughts about Traditions 1 and 2 and how they work in your life. And Karen, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of living the traditions, or any other topic. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. And our website, as you probably have figured out by now, is therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show. We have notes for each episode. In those notes, we'll have links to the music we talk about, uh, the readings, or at least a description of the readings we read and links to the, to where you can buy the book if you don't have it already. We will take a short break before diving into the mailbag. Our second musical selection available on the website is Broken by Lovely the Band. And here we see again our floating slash surrendering analogy. Lyrics are, life is not a love song that we like. We're all broken pieces floating by. Life is not a love song. got some emails this week. No voicemail, but that's the way that goes sometimes. Amy from Chicago wrote, Hi Spencer. I attended my first Elanon conference this weekend and I learned a lot. I really wasn't all that worried or concerned due to everything that I've heard about Elanon conferences on the recovery show and I felt ready to do it. I did hear a great open speaker that really connected to me. Her name was Susan B. from Illinois. She has a very interesting story, and so many of her feelings and experiences are things that I related to, and I know others can too. It could be a nice open talk to post when you need it. It was also a little surreal to hear Linda Q speak in person. As she started her talk, I thought to myself, this is really familiar. And then I remembered that I heard it on the recovery show. I did enjoy hearing more of her story and the updates to her life. Thank you again for all of your hard work and service. Well, thanks, Amy, for writing, and... uh, I'm glad you made it to a conference and that it was a good experience. And I will see if I can find a recording of Susan B and, uh, and listen to it and maybe drop her into uh, the podcast at some point. Thanks. Would you like to read the, the email from Brian? Okay. Good morning, Spencer. Brian, grateful Essanon in Seattle. I was just listening to episode 305 and heard the question about Mary Pearl. I was curious about the same thing, and this summer I happened to speak with someone who knows her personally. Yes, she is still alive, but not necessarily traveling and speaking so much anymore. She has been such an asset to my recovery, and I am grateful for all of her experiences, strength, and hope that she has shared. Brian J. Well, thank you, Brian, for updating on that. Us on that. There was yeah, somebody wrote in that I read in episode three hundred five saying, "Hey, do you know if Mary Pearl is still around?" And I was like, I really don't know. <laughs> That's the thing about these recordings, right? 
Right. They used to be tapes that you would yeah. play in the cassette player. Yeah. You know, people's voice live on sometimes long after they're they're no longer here. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So thanks, Brian. Uh, Renee wrote, Hi there. I'm new to Al-Anon and found your podcast about three weeks ago. I listened mostly in the car during the day. Today, I listened to episode number 188 on detachment and had to replay and transcribe portions as soon as I got to work. Detachment from expectations and outcomes was exactly what I needed to hear this morning. I love when God does that. Thank you for your show. I always learn something valuable when I tune in. Have a great day, Renee. Thanks, Renee. I mean, that's why why it's there. And I would like to mention, which I think I forgot to do earlier, that if you have an episode number, you can always go directly to it on the website. Just go to the recovery.show slash 188 for that detachment episode. Um, That's great. Yeah. How have you had to detach from expectations and outcomes, Karen? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I've had to detach by accepting fully reality and life on life's terms, which is really hard for me. But once I did that, the answers became more clear. You know, once you you do the second A, you know, first one is awareness, second A is acceptance, then you get closer to the third A, which is action. From there, you can make more informed decisions. Mm-hmm. Without having expectations. Yes. About yep. what, what's going to happen once you take those actions. So. Yeah, we have to be careful of our expectations. Okay, we got a a note from an anonymous listener. You want to read that? Sure. Hello, thank you for your podcast. Although my husband is not drinking, although he has drank heavily in the past, I would not call him an alcoholic. As such, I am not sure I would even qualify for Al-Anon. Although I do have an uncle who died of alcoholic liver disease about 10 years ago and who emotionally abused me by teasing me throughout my childhood. Would I have a qualifier? My husband does have ADHD, OCD, and anxiety and is prone to fits of rage. He also has a number of serious medical problems that are a result of genetic bad luck. He is on meds for those mental health disorders, and he is better than he used to be. I am no longer regularly called ugly names, etc. I am finding so many of the ideas in your podcasts and the recovery literature incredibly helpful with dealing with his unpredictable fits of rage and anxiety. I walk on eggshells around him, take the temperature of the room, and never know what will set him off in exactly the same way someone does the same things around an alcoholic. He definitely could benefit from therapy or even Al-Anon program of his own. Although they weren't alcoholics either, his parents both exhibited these same behaviors, only much worse, and the family was completely dysfunctional. They divorced when he was five, and he was pulled between two very manipulative and abusive families. I wonder if you could do a show on how to handle a spouse who continues to drink and misbehave around young children. My husband is not drinking, but he is exhibiting a great many of the same behaviors that come out of drunkenness, the rage, unpredictable behavior, etc. Your audience obviously would be interested in the drinking part. My children already know that they never can tell how daddy will respond to something, and they come to me with their troubles. I appreciated your show on finding serenity while your wife continued to drink, but you don't mention having children in the house while this is going on. It's much easier to put boundaries in place, i.e., if you speak to me like that, I will leave the room, house, etc., until you stop when the children aren't involved. I don't want to leave them unprotected. To be clear, he has never hit me or the kids, and most of the time he is a good man and a loving spouse and father. It's the times that he isn't that are the problem. Thank you again for your show and your work, and I would appreciate any direction you might be able to give. I'm going to get courage to change, and I have passed to recovery. Sincerely, Anonymous. Wow, so much in there. I did have kids. It's interesting that I didn't mention them in that episode. <laughs> uh, my kids were, I have twins and they were 11 when I came into Al-Anon. I think, you know, they, they were entering into that part of their life where maybe they didn't need me to be right there all the time. Um, if they were little kids, that would be very different, I guess. Let's see what else. Oh, 
do you qualify? That's a that's an interesting question. It's a question that I hear a lot from people who are are new to the program. And although the third tradition for Al-Anon says something like there the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend, it then goes on to talk about being affected by another's drinking and about the fact that the drinking itself may be far in the past. It may be in a parent or a grandparent even, and and we can still be affected by it. Saying, yes, I have an uncle who died of alcoholic liver disease. Well, so to me that says, yeah, there's alcoholism in the family there somewhere, and you probably are affected by it. And that's all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right? What are your thoughts? Well, the fact that Anonymous writes, I walk on eggshells around him. God. Yeah. That's us. That's That sentence or those couple of sentences, I walk on eggshells, I take the temperature of the room. I mean, mm-hmm. oh, that just feels so familiar. So, yeah, how do you how do you remove yourself when the kid... I mean, you've had that situation, right? Yeah, I do. I have it. I've lived it. Um, I very much focus on objective behaviors with the children and not my opinions of it. You know, they'll, they'll say daddy was grumpy, you know, while he had beer or the next morning or daddy yelled at me when I, you know, tried to talk to him and he was sleeping. So I, I just talked to him. I said, well, daddy feels angry. Why are some of the reasons you are angry? And, you know, they'll say, well, I'm tired or I'm hungry or whatever. And I said, well, he, you know, he's angry too. And sometimes when people drink alcohol, it makes them angry. And we don't always know if they're going to be nice or silly. I, I very much stick to the behaviors because they've been able to tell me they feel scared or unsafe or he's, you know, he's slurring his words. I can't understand what he's saying. He tried to tell a bedtime story and he repeated the same word nine times and stuff like that. <laughs> Say, oh, okay. Well, you know, that's what happens when you drink too much alcohol and um, daddy needs to go to sleep, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And now with the two homes, they have cell phones and they can text me if they ever feel in danger and I can come and get them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Trying to put that life Keep that life together. Yeah. Thanks. A listener commented on the episode of Michelle B's Open Talk. Thank you for sharing this awesome message. I needed to hear this more than you could ever know. I'm so grateful that my friend told me about this podcast. And thank you for for that support. Yasmin says, Hi, Spencer. I've been a listener for about a year and can't tell you how many times your show brought light and serenity back into my life when I was down. I'm a member of the other program, but appreciate Al-Anon's beautiful wisdom. Thank you for bringing it into my life. I've recommended your show to all my English-speaking friends and program, and will keep on doing that. May you and Amy be well and keep thriving one day at a time. Blessings and love from Europe. Well, thank you for writing, Yasmin. I know I'm doing this for the joy of service, but it does help to hear that it's touching people. It is. Thank, Thank you. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Janice, Yasmin, Carmen, and Desea did. You can also support us by sharing the podcast with your friends. Simply direct them to therecovery.show or by listening. You know, every now and then I go out and look at the numbers and I'm like, wow, that many people are listening? Wow. <laughs> I used to do that. Like when we first started the podcast is like daily, like how many people listen to it just, you know, today, yesterday. And, and now it's, I might go look once a month or so um, just to, just to see how what's happening. And so then I can be surprised like, wow, you probably don't want to know what the number is. I do want to know the number. (laughs) I've been, you've been such a lifesaver in between meetings when you can't get out of your house. Programs saved me and how many others? Yeah. So last time I looked, most of the episodes were getting somewhere around 10,000 listens. (gasps) Wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot. I listened to, I listened to some podcasts about making podcasts, obviously. And the one guy is like, if you say, oh, I only have 100 listeners, I want you to visualize a room with 100 people in it that you're speaking to. Like, how big is that room? 
you know? How big is a room with 10,000 people in it? I mean, that's like a basketball arena or something, okay? I don't even want to go there. Like, I would be freaked. But You're going to fill the big house, right, in Ann Arbor? <laughs> uh, that's going to take a little bit longer. That's like 100,000, okay? So what's your last song selection? I just want to say one of the reasons I love asking people to suggest music is that you find things that I haven't even heard of. This one I have. This is the only one of your three that I've heard of. So I woke up the very first night in my house and it was like four o'clock in the morning. And I just thought of the Twisted Sister song, We're Not Gonna Take It. And I got up and I put it on my Apple Music and I found it and played it. And I was like, that's right. I'm not going to take it. I have choices. I'm not a tree. I can get up and move. And that just kind of got me going for my first day in the house of my new life. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we do not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.